On the night of September 28th of 2000, David Kim played a basketball game at the church while Kim, his wife, took Jill, his daughter, to dance class and Brad, their son, to swim practice. At 7.30, Kim drove them home. At about 9 o'clock, David Kim left the gym with the rest of the basketball players and at 9.29 p.m., the police got a frantic call from a familiar voice. It was David Kim. Hello, everyone. I'm Linda Hubert and your host, for Beware True Crime. Thank you so much for listening. This is a crazy case. So, unfortunately, I had different ideas, but after I did a bunch of research, my ideas changed. So, this is one of those cases that you have to listen to the whole thing before you make any determinations. So, if you will please hit your share, like, and follow buttons, I would really appreciate it. But let's go ahead and buckle up and let's get started. murders, the Cam family lived in Georgetown, Indiana, a quiet town right outside New, New Albany. Kim was a financial analyst, and her husband David was recently resigned from the Indiana State Police to take a job in the family business. That summer, he coached Brad and Jill's Little League team. The children spent their days at Graceland Christian School, where Brad was in second grade and Jill was in kindergarten. Twice a week, the kids got to spend their afternoons with Kim's parents. Cam's family worshipped at the Georgetown Community Church, a church that was built by David's grandfather and led by his uncle. Kim was a treasurer. Get everybody out here. Get everybody to my house. My wife and kids are dead. Police were summoned to the Cam residence shortly after 9.30 on September 28, 2000. 
they found Kim and Bradley and Jill Cam shot to death in the garage of their home. Cam told police that when he returned home from playing basketball at the nearby church, he found his wife shot to death on the garage floor. He then saw his daughter Jill sitting upright in the back seat, still strapped into her seatbelt. Brad was draped over the driver's side of the back seat as though he had been trying to get away. Since both Kim and Jill had been shot in the head, Cam stated that he thought his son, who had no head injuries, might still be alive. So he entered the passenger front of the Bronco, went through the two bucket seats and grabbed his son, taking him out, putting him on the garage floor, and giving him CPR. Bradley Cam was found lying on the garage floor and later an autopsy reported that he was shot through his torso, severing his spine. When the officers arrived, they found a distraught Cam at the threshold of a gruesome scene. Kim and Brad had been sprawled on the garage floor bleeding and Jill was still in there in the Ford Bronco. Kim was in her underwear and her shoes were on top of the truck. Now remember that fact that her shoes were on top of the Bronco because that detail is going to be really important later on. So when David told him when he couldn't save his son, he ran inside and called the Indiana State Police Post. Cam's family started arriving on scene almost immediately. Now they lived right across the street from their grandparents so i'm sure when the family saw all the all the activity over at david's house they probably knew something was going on when they told the camp's parents donald and sue cam they already knew cam's siblings found their mother on the ground rocking back and forth clutching a photo of brad and jill to her chest crying my babies my babies in new albany where kim's parents live frank and janice reen heard the doorbell ring about 11 o'clock and they <clears throat> went downstairs at the front door was Cam's uncle on the with the news about her their daughter and grandchildren being killed for months after Janice Kim's Kim's mother would jolt awake swearing she heard the doorbell she'd drag herself out of bed to check but the front door was always empty at first, Kim's parents couldn't believe that their son-in-law would be capable of murder. What kind of father would shoot their children? Test results revealed eight specks of Jill's blood on David's shirt. And the investigator said that the pattern was consistent with black back blowback from a gunshot. The medical examiner said that Jill had blunt first trauma to her genitals consistent with being molested or maybe a fall that likely occurred within 24 hours of her murder Janice Reen believed that her granddaughter would have told anybody if she'd been molested unless it was her father the suspicions re regarding David Cam's behavior that night raised questions 
Why did he call the state police post his old stopping ground instead of 911? And why would he give Brad CPR and never attempt it on his wife or his daughter? Now, let me give you some background on the Cam family. When Kimberly Starr Ring married David Cam, it was in May of 1989. She believed she was marrying the man of her dreams, the man with whom she would grow old with. Now, David had been married once before, and he had a daughter from that previous marriage. He was the perfect husband, she thought, until the summer of 1992. Earlier that year, David met Stephanie McCarty, a young woman who worked at a fitness zone health club that David was a member of. The relationship remained platonic throughout the birth of Kim and David's son Bradley in 1993. But after Stephanie broke up with her boyfriend in the summer of 94, David wasted no time making his move. David never attempted to hide his affair with Stephanie, taking her out to dinner, to nightclubs, even to NASCAR races, while Kim was at home caring for the infant son, believing her son, her husband, was working. When Kim announced that she was pregnant again, Stephanie told David that the relationship was over, but it didn't last, and soon the two lovebirds were back sneaking around again. This time around, however, Kim suspected that her husband was being unfaithful, and she questioned him about it. David, who had decided he wanted out of the marriage, confessed his sins and told his now five-month-old pregnant wife he wanted a divorce because he was in love with his mistress. Kim was understandably devastated. The same night, she packed for herself and baby Bradley, and she went to her parents' home. By the next morning, however, anger had set in, and she returned, and she threw David out. Good for her. The marriage was over, and David and Kim got their own apartments, although Stephanie was officially renting on another friend's lease or something. With all intent and purposes, she was living with David. David's family was disgusted with him. While remaining supportive of Kim, when Kim gave birth to David's daughter, Jill, on February 28th of 1995, her parents and her in-laws were there. David was not. The affair between David and Stephanie came to an end in March. Stephanie was going back to her ex-boyfriend. Within a few minutes, Within a few hours of Stephanie calling it off with David, David called Kim and said he wanted to talk and he wanted to try to make their marriage work. Kim still loved David and was now the mother of his two children. So it didn't take much for David to talk his way back into Kim's heart. Both her family and David's were surprised Kim was so readily taking David back, but they wanted to support her decision. Unfortunately, as Kim and David started anew, they decided to build a dream home. David's desire for greener pastures would rear its ugly head again. When David and Kim moved into their new home on Lockhart Road in Georgetown, Indiana, it felt like a new beginning. Kim was proud of her new home, but she was also more pleased with David and how he was really seemed to change. 
He was spending so much more time with Brad and Jill, and it was it was when his work would permit it. If anybody took a closer look, however, they'd find David, while presenting himself as a devoted husband to his wife, he returned to lying about his work hours and compulsively pursuing extramarital affairs. David wasn't doing so good with the Indiana State Police either. He'd recently been demoted. Realizing he was probably going to have to be forced to work the crap jobs permanently for the Indiana State Police, David decided to go to work with his uncle full-time in a sales position. Kim was very happy about this. It was more money and better hours. She felt that they could be a happy family. David would would be around more, not having to work the extra hours for the state police. On the night of September 28th of 2000, Kim had picked up her children for their, from their activities and headed home. Upon arrival at approximately 7.35, according to testimony of the neighbor, Kim pulled her car into the garage, but before she could enter the house, she was shot and killed instantly. Now remember, the neighbor saw Kim pull into the garage at 7.35, so she'd gotten out of her car and then was shot on the passenger side of the car, look, looking like she was about ready to get her daughter out of the out of her seat. Kim's pants had been removed and her shoes were put on top of the Bronco. The killer then turned to Brad, who had witnessed the attack on his mother, had unbuckled his seatbelt and was trying to escape to the rear of the storage area of the SUV when he was shot. After watching both attacks, Jill, the five-year-old princess, remained strapped into her seat but was covering her, her little eyes with her hand in an effort to escape this horrific images. As such, she did not see the bullet that claimed her life. Around 9.15, after playing basketball with friends and family at the Georgetown Community Church, David Cam returned home to find his family dead in the garage of their home. Soon after fr frantically calling the state police for help, David's former co-workers and emergency personnel rushed to the scene and they found a distraught David standing in the driveway. Was the man standing in the driveway, the man who had cheated so frequently and blazingly on his wife, the man who was a former state trooper sworn to protect and serve a victim, or was he a perpetrator with superb acting skills? The first thing the detective realized that this was no robbery gone bad. There was no attempts to enter the house. The shots fired were precise and the ones, it wasn't a frenzy shooting. Whoever it was, the killers intended for Kim, Brad, and Jill to die. The detective became suspicious of Kim when he said he tried to revive his son. Usually, if you have someone come upon a crime scene and they talk about rendering aid or being involved in the crime scene, their footprints, and he didn't see any footprints. Detectives were also immediately suspicious at how neat the crime scene was. 
An autopsy performed the very next day confirmed what the investigators already expected. All three of the victims had been killed by gunfire. But what they didn't expect, it revealed that Jill had recently been sexually abused. But when their investigators suggest David was responsible for this abuse, his family came to his defense. His sister, Julie Cam, didn't believe the narrative that the detectives were outlining. Now, now they're saying that he left the ball game, went home, sexually abused his daughter, then murdered his family, and somehow got them all back in the Bronco and con- got the kids conveniently buckled up in the car. This is just crazy. This is crazy, his sister said. Detectives were well aware of David's numerous affairs, the stories of his skirt chasing and the common topic among officers within the jurisdiction. Now, these indiscretions were under investigation as evidence of a homicidal motive. There had also been recent and substantial increase in the couple's life insurance policies. Kim was aware of the increases and had even signed them, considering the ink was hardly dry before the murders, however, investigators were suspicious. The police had taken David's clothes on the night of the murder. Now they asked if he'd be willing to submit to a DNA for a suspect kit so he could be eliminated as the, ki- as the killer. The request angered David, but he later complied. Now, an expert, and I use that term sarcastically, as you'll find out later on in this story, would note a mop bucket with a strong odor odor of bleach at the crime scene. However, the expert, okay, would later have to admit that he had mistaken some dried wet spots in the garage for bleach, and it wasn't. And I unidentified palm print was found on the exterior of Kim's Ford Bronco, but since she parked in a public parking place every day at work, investigators just dismissed that. When investigators arrived at the scene, Kim's shoes were on top of the Ford Bronco, and we kind of said something about that earlier, but detectives wondered why a killer, even a hired hitman, would remove Kim's shoes. They concluded that Kim driven home with her shoes off and had exited the vehicle and placed them on top of the roof, or was that a personal act in the course of the murder? They didn't know. David informed them that Kim would never drive anywhere without her shoes on. And then there was David's clothes, the fine mist, so fine that was invisible to the naked eye of Jill's blood was found on David's shirt. It was considered to be high-velocity blood splatter. David had to be the shooter, right? Now remember that David had leaned over Jill to get Bradley out of the car. There also was a sweatshirt found under Bradley bearing the name Backbone on the back collar, like it was penciled on. But David denied any knowledge of how that shirt came to his house. It was looking very much like David had killed his family. But what about those 11 witnesses that claimed he was playing basketball all that time during the murders? Well, three days after, he was 
After he had discovered the violent death of his wife and children, David Cam was arrested and charged with the murders. Despite investigators' narrative of Cam's motive, they were confident in this case. We don't have to prove motive, said Prosecutor Stan Faith. All we have to do is prove that he did it. We don't have to say why he did it. We'll never know the reasons why he did it exactly, because the three people that could tell us are dead. Despite the prosecutor's strong evidence against David, David's defense team felt that their client's 11 alibis would be enough for an acquittal. The prosecutor, Stanley Faith, however, was prepared to argue David had slipped out of the basketball game unnoticed, returned to his house, made a phone call, then killed his wife and children, and the Verizon phone records would prove it because they said there was a phone call made at 710 from the house that night to one of David's customers. Now, let's think about this. So, he left the the basketball game so he could hurry home and kill his family but man I really need to call this customer back okay I'll make a quick phone call and wait for them to come back that's just ludicrous yet when the defense was able to prove that the Verizon record was one hour ahead of the actual time the call was made it was actually made at 610 it would seem that the case against David was crumbling you see, Indiana has two time zones, so it was actually not 7:10; it was 6:10 before David even went to the game that he called his customer. Regardless of all this, Stan Faith pressed forward, believing they had a right, the right man. See, this was a big case, and Stan Faith was going to be the one to prosecute it. They had an expert that said. David Cam had high-velocity blood splatter on his shirt. He had to do it, right? After nine weeks of testimony and 29 hours of grueling de- deliberation, the jury came back with a verdict of guilty on all three counts. Just after midnight on Monday, March 18, 2002. The following month, David was sentenced to a total of 195 years in prison. Now let's keep in mind, he was a cheater. The blood splatter was the main ev- evidence. It was, present- it was presented by Stites, the blood stain expert, or was he an expert? But if anyone thought that this was the last they heard of David Cam, they were sadly mistaken. Cam appealed, and two years later, the Indiana Supreme Court overturned the conviction, noting that the state had not adequately proven that his infidelity was the motive for the murder. They also warned the next trial judge that allowing the molestation accusations could lead to another reversal. A new county prosecutor refiled charges against Cam, but also announced his office would launch a fresh eyes investigation. A second chance, the Cams thought, finally. In the box of evidence, investigators found unidentified DNA from a sweatshirt. Prosecutors finally tested it nearly five years after the murder. And it matched a guy named Charles Boney, 
an 11-time convicted felon with a foot fetish. He'd been dubbed the Shoot Bandit for assaulting women in Bloomington and stealing their shoes. Remember, they found Kim's shoes on top of the Bronco, and Kim didn't have any pants on. Written inside the collar of the Department of Corrections sweatshirt was the word backbone, a nickname Booney acquired behind bars. His handprint was found on Kim's Bronco. He had also been just released just a few months before that after serving 11 years for holding three female students hostage at gunpoint in their Bloomington apartment. During interrogation, Booney first claimed he didn't know Cam or his family. He told investigators somebody must have planted his sweatshirt at the scene. When detective asked him how his handprint got on the passenger side of Kim's truck, Booney started backtracking. This interrogation spanned over several days. On one break, Booney was able to go home and he called none other than Stan Faith. He was friends with Booney's mother. There were several calls between Faith and Booney and Booney was brought back in. Their best case scenario, one of the investigators told him, is to be a witness. Well, in a written statement, Booney said he'd met Cam a couple months before the murders at a basketball game and ran into him again at the convenience store. Boone said Cam asked him to buy a gun. Once that deal was made, Boone asked for another. The two arranged to meet the night of September 28th of 2000 at Cam's house. He said he gave Cam the gun wrapped in his sweatshirt. It was then Booney wrote that he heard Cam shoot his wife and children. Booney went on to say that he was inside the Cam's house on the night of the murders when David went into the garage and shot his wife and children. Booney had said he rushed outside, which is how his handprint got on Kim's SUV, and he was also responsible for moving Ken's shoes, and he placed him on top of the vehicle because he almost fell over her shoes, and he didn't want anybody else to. Oh, wasn't that nice of him. It was then, after digging, the investigators learned about his arrest in 1989 for attacking several women from the sole purpose of stealing their shoes. During questioning about the Cam murder, Booney would claim that he it was just a fraternity prank and nothing more. There was never any evidence that Cam and Booney ever knew each other or had ever met. David Cam and his family thought Booney's arrest would finally be the truth that they had been seeking. With Booney's history, how could investigators believe his story about David being involved? Unfortunately for David, they did. After Booney's arrest, prosecutors dropped the charges of murder against David and refiled them with an additional charge of conspiracy. In 2006, Booney was convicted of three counts of murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder and sentenced to 225 years in prison. Later that year, a new prosecutor, Henderson, was trying David a second time. This time, he said the motive was molestation. 
Now remember, the Court of Appeals warned them against using that as a motive. But who were they? Prosecutors knew better. They couldn't use the blood splatter because expert Stites has been charged with perjury. He was not an expert, and Faith, the first prosecutor, had helped him make up his credentials. Seitz had never been to a crime scene before. He was just an assistant. There was, there was a real expert that said the blood on David's shirt had been from transfer. Remember when he reached over to grab his son? They thought that's where the blood came from. Following the second trial, first on the new charges, David was again found guilty of murder of his wife and children and of conspiracy as well. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Now, on June 26, 2009, the Indiana Supreme Court overturned David's conviction, saying the prosecutors should not have been allowed testifying regarding the molestation of the daughter without evidence to back it up. Now, remember, Jill had had dance and gymnastics that day, and the autopsy report said that her Heimlich was intact. Did she fall? Nobody will ever know. On November 11th, the Indiana Court of Appeals ordered prosecution prosecutor Keith Henderson to recuse himself from David's third trial, which was expected to begin in August of 2013, because Henderson had signed a book deal. An inability to use David's extramarital affairs or the molestation of Jill, it made a conviction seem impossible. Nevertheless, prosecutors moved forward with a new trial. This time, they would claim David's motive was the life insurance policy. Although the CAM's life insurance policy increasing was certainly suspect, in the end, it wasn't enough to convict a jury of, of the former Indiana State Trooper of murdering his wife and two children. He was finally found innocent. Since his 2013 acquittal, David Kim has been trying to rebuild his life. Today, he works as a case coordinator for Investigating Innocence, a nonprofit organization dedicated to defending American inmates who feel that they have been wrongly convicted. Charles Booney remains behind bars to serve his 225-year sentence. Former FBI agent Gary Dunn, who served as defense attorney private investigator for Cam's second trial, study, has studied hundreds of documents that he claims proves once and for all that David Cam is innocent. In 2022, he wrote a book about the case, calling it the worst injustice he's ever seen. This is the perfect storm of injustice, and it was all man-made, Dunn said. A narrative, political or otherwise, it's more important than the truth to many. We can't have that. That shouldn't be. In 2016, David agreed to settle with Floyd County officials for $250,000 as a result of a civil suit he filed for wrongful person 
prosecution following his acquittal. He continues to reside in Indiana. In February 22, Cam settled his case against the state of Indiana for $4.6 million. And in August of 23, a judge awarded David Cam $3 million in the judgment against Charles Booney. The dollar figure represents $1 million for each member of the Booney murders, the, each member that Booney murdered. Although he may be a rich man now, let's not forget that he lost his beautiful wife, Kim, his wonderful son, Bradley, and his precious daughter, Jill, and he spent 13 years behind bars for a crime he didn't commit. This is Linda Hubert, and thank you so much for listening to Beware True Crime. Even though David Kim may not be the best husband, he wasn't a murderer, and so we need to keep in mind that everybody is innocent until proven guilty, and you actually have to prove them guilty. Thank you so much, and if you could please hit your like, your share, and your follow button, I would really appreciate it. And until next time, beware.